0: Welcome to Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Boss. Just ahead on on today's show, we're going to talk with an expert from the organization Louisiana Clean Fuels. We'll talk about the state of electric vehicle infrastructure in Louisiana. That's an interesting question as the state eyes millions of dollars in matching funds from federal infrastructure legislation. We want to hear how the state is going to make the best use of that money. Also, we hear about an exhibit where visitors can hear voices directly from the people involved in the civil rights movement in New Orleans in the 1950s. 60s and 70s, we'll talk with the historic New Orleans collection. But first, as saltwater moves up the Mississippi River from the Gulf of Mexico, residents across the greater New Orleans area have had a lot of questions. This isn't the first time a so-called saltwater wedge has threatened drinking water this far north, but this time it could last longer than usual. And here to answer some of your most asked questions, we have Coastal Desk reporter Hallie Parker. Welcome to the program, Hallie. Thanks, Adam. So... Let's start with the basics. What is a saltwater wedge and why is it happening?
1: Okay, so we're going to start with some saltwater wedge 101, as I like to call it. Um, You know, right now we're in the middle of this historic drought throughout the whole Mississippi River watershed, so there's a lot less water flowing down the river than usual. And when that happens, this saltwater from the ocean can migrate upriver along the river's bottom, which is actually below sea level. And usually when that happens, it doesn't extend past Plaquemines because I do want to be clear that this is a cyclical event that tends to happen. once per decade. Um, What's unusual here for us is that it's happening in back-to-back years and just how long this this year's saltwater intrusion could actually end up lasting.
0: Hmm. Now, from what I've heard, the problem started in late June affecting people in Lower Plaquemines Parish, and the saltwater wedge is stuck near the communities of Ironton and Myrtle Grove, blocked by an underwater barrier for now. Remind us of how long it will be before communities uh, further upriver are affected.
1: Yeah. Thanks for that. Um, so, f- yes, for now, the salt water has been delayed downriver by this underwater sill um, to buy, you know, all of these federal, state and local officials time to map out their response. Um, th- c- the Army Corps of Engineers has a projected timeline on their website that they keep updated and people should really check out. Um, right now, the wedge will reach Bell Chase's water plant around October 13th, um, St. Bernard around a week later, and then Orleans and Jefferson parishes in the week of October 22nd.
0: So we're told the saltwater intrusion could reach as far north as Orleans and Jefferson Parishes. Could it go even further?
1: Yes. So I asked the Corps about this. And just because it could be so long before we get enough rain that falls in the Ohio and the upper Mississippi River valleys to replenish our river, um, it's possible that the Wedge could get to St. Charles Parish. But we're really too far out at this point to know. And there's a lot of distance between the East Jefferson plant and the first treatment plant in St. Charles. So it would take a lot longer to get there.
0: I think one of the biggest questions for people, especially after seeing people in Plaquemines actually lose access to water, will southeast Louisiana still have safe water to drink?
1: this is a really big question. And, you know, it is, of course, possible that we face some sort of disruption. But the saltwater moving up the Mississippi River right now doesn't guarantee that we won't have safe or fresh tasting water. There's still a lot of variables and we really shouldn't overreact. Um, Also, FEMA just approved the governor's request for a federal disaster declaration. So we should have more resources coming down the pike. Um, Officials and local water advocates have also told me that it's too soon to tell if drinking water can be affected or will be affected at any point but if it does happen where the concentration of salt ends up exceeding that limit that 250 parts per million they will issue water advisories um, because that's when it starts to really affect flavor that's when water starts tasting salty but even that isn't as much as you might think it's actually a little less than the amount of salt in two slices of cooked bacon But, you know, of course, not everyone can eat even that much bacon for health reasons. And those people on a low salt diet should really take the most care in storing tap water now in case the salt level gets too high for them and make sure they have some other form of bulk water.
0: So going through preparation options people might be thinking of now, is there, for instance, any way for people to remove salt water at home?
1: So the simple answer is no. Unfortunately, something like a normal Brita filter or something like that won't be enough to separate salt from water, nor can you simply boil the water to remove it. But- I want to make sure people know that that doesn't mean you should go out and spend all your money stockpiling water either. For now, like I mentioned earlier, you can really store the tap water that's coming out of your faucets right now, keep that in bulk, and also just make sure you're being conservative with your water use. Um, If we do have a disruption, the New Orleans Office of Homeland Security and Emergency Preparedness is coordinating with Jefferson Parish, the National Guard, and the state to develop some sort of distribution plan, but it's not done yet, just in case we do face a disruption.
0: And tell us, where can we get some more information?
1: Yeah, so I am putting together a guide with as many answers as I can gather on this. I know that people are really interested. Um, So people can go check out WWNO.org or WRKF.org later today. Thanks, Hallie. Thanks, Adam.
0: Hallie Parker is environment reporter for WWNO and WRKF's Coastal Desk. From WRKF in Baton Rouge and WWNO in New Orleans, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. In August, the Biden administration opened the first ever wind lease sale in the Gulf of Mexico, and now companies can bid for the rights to put giant wind turbines off the coast of southwest Louisiana and east Texas. But despite the excitement leading up to the lease sale, it only attracted two bidders. Exports point to high costs due to inflation, rising interest rates, and the big fact that unlike other regions, Gulf states have made no commitment to purchase clean energy. Despite an uncertain future for the wind industry, clean energy is becoming more popular in the Gulf South in other ways, thanks to new federal funding for electric vehicle charging stations. Tyler Herman is project manager with Louisiana Clean Fuels, a nonprofit advancing affordable clean transportation energy technologies and an affiliate of the U.S. Department of Energy's Clean Cities program. Tyler joins us today for more on the growth of elect uh, of the electric vehicle industry in Louisiana. Tyler, welcome to the studio.
2: yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here and chat a little bit about what we got going on in Louisiana.
0: So what is the state of electric vehicle EV infrastructure in our state right now? Some recent reports rank Louisiana the worst in the nation. One statistic says four EV charging outlets per ten thousand vehicles. I'm not sure where that is in the scheme of things. Are those fairly realistic takes?
2: Yeah, so I usually like to say things are um, better than you'd expect in Louisiana, but not as good as we'd like it to be, is kind of my my general take on where we are with infrastructure for alternative fuels and electric vehicles particularly. Um, in terms of the kind of four charging outlets per 10,000 vehicles, it kind of depends on how you're looking at it. There are different types of uh, electric vehicle chargers. Um, that really range from like slow things that you charge at uh, at home and then fast things for interstate travel. And those statistics really depend on, on which one you're looking at. So things are pretty good in terms of the slower destination type charging in Louisiana, but they're pretty lacking in terms of the fast chargers that we would use for interstate travel.
0: So in terms of range anxiety, that's one topic that comes up a lot in terms of whether somebody's going to buy their electric vehicle or not. If you had to travel east-west across I-10 across Louisiana, would you be able to do it? Would it be convenient?
2: Yeah. um, Would you be able to do it? Yes, generally. So um, particularly across like I-10 slash I-12 across east, west Louisiana. um, You do have Electrify America charging stations. Those are publicly available chargers. Um, There are only like four plugs per station. And there are, I think, three different sites across the I-10, I-12 corridor. So not hugely available and not a huge number of them, but it is definitely possible. And then if you drive a Tesla, the situation's much, much brighter in that regard. They do have more charging stations. Their sites typically have way more plugs than that. They'll have 10 plugs per site, for example. So it's a bit better in that situation. Um, but as, as I know we're going to discuss a lot, this is really up and coming. There's a lot of money going into this and a lot of charging stations we can expect in the very near future.
0: Yeah. As of right now, what do you think the barriers are to building more EV infrastructure and making it so people would not think twice before getting an electric vehicle?
2: Yeah, um, it's it's kind of like trite at this point to say it, but it's a chicken and egg problem that we're really facing right now. Um, the uh, people who might want to open or operate an electric vehicle charging station don't really have confidence that they can make a profit on that charging station. Uh, people who want to buy a vehicle may not have the confidence that they can drive far, right? And so without enough vehicles on the road to actually support the infrastructure and make those profitable, people don't want to build infrastructure. And without infrastructure that to support vehicles, people don't want to buy vehicles.
0: Suppose you were an enterprising business person and you wanted to put in an electric charger for people. Mm -hmm. What sort of money does that cost?
2: Yeah. Um, So, again, one of the weird things about electric vehicles that I think makes it so unique and makes it kind of a little bit more complicated is that there are these different levels of charging. If you're looking at really fast charging that might get you typically, say, 20 to 80 percent of your battery state, your battery charge uh, in a charging session, that's kind of the standard uh, if you want that to be around 15 minutes of a charging session, those are are quite expensive. You're looking at somewhere between um, two hundred dollars to $300,000 for a plug. Um, but then there are chargers that are down for stuff like a church setting where you're going to be parked for a couple of hours or a park or the zoo where you're going to be for a couple of hours. Those chargers can be as little as, as $3,000 per plug. So it's a pretty dramatic range, and you kind of suit the needs of whatever your business model is. So speaking
0: of infrastructure investment, the state is putting forward $73 million. I think the number is over five years for mm-hmm. EV infrastructure, part of Biden's infrastructure bill. The DOTD will oversee it. It's part of this 80-20 federal-state match. What goals do we have for that? How much are we going to build up the EV infrastructure with that money? And how far does that $73 million go toward your goals?
2: Yeah, you know, so the infrastructure bill has quite a bit of funding available for electric vehicles broadly, specifically electric vehicle infrastructure through this program. Um, this program, for anybody not aware, is called the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Program, or INEVI, NEVI, N-E-V-I. Um, and it is a part of $5 billion across the U.S. going to states, distributed to the states, for them to use for this electric vehicle infrastructure across their their territories, right? So Louisiana's portion of that is $73.4 million dollars which is quite a bit. That's way more than we've ever put to this before. Each site's going to cost around a million dollars. And that does include five years of operations and maintenance, which is a requirement of the program. Um, So you're looking at around a million dollars per site and each site will have four plugs. So if you're looking at around a million dollars per site, uh, we're looking at about 73 sites across the state. Um, now, because we're doing 80-20 match, that number goes up a little bit more because the federal government funding is only going to 80% of the project cost. Um, so, somewhere in the ballpark of 70 to 100 sites across Louisiana over the next five years.
0: Advocates for greener energy for auto transportation that's greener often do talk about charging stations with a term that we're using, infrastructure. It's a type of infrastructure, public infrastructure, characterized as a publicly available system for the benefit of the general public that almost seems leans toward hinting at, well, it should be a thing that's publicly funded. And, of course, we're getting all of this government money to do this project. Um, How is it working out that EV infrastructure, when you're talking chicken and egg again, is starting with public funding rather than private individuals, private companies getting the ball rolling?
2: Yeah. um, So this is like a really kind of nuanced and complicated topic, I think, in a lot of ways. And if you kind of think about there, there are basically three, like broadly three different problems that we're facing with electrification that are stopping people from buying vehicles. You have the um, pure supply of the vehicles and the infrastructure that is just pure manufacturing. Like these things have to be built for them to be purchased. You have the demand side of things, whether people want to purchase them or can afford to purchase them. And then you have the infrastructure to support them, the actual You know, electricity to your homes allows you to buy electric lights and and all this sort of stuff. That's the kind of classic problem that we've always had. Those are the the sort of three major pillars there. And they said, well, okay, let's just get ahead of one of them. We'll just beef it up really aggressively and get the infrastructure built out so that we can support way more vehicles than we have on the road today. And then we'll let the rest of the industry kind of catch up with that and just solve one of the problems. Um, But that isn't really the only thing that the The federal government did. They also um, provided quite a bit of uh, tax incentives for individuals to purchase the vehicles, particularly through the Inflation Reduction Act that came out last year. Um, Now, in terms of how the public-private partnership side of this thing works, um, one of the reasons that the federal government is doing this in 80-20 split is to have that sort of private investment in it. And that's what Louisiana is doing through the NEVI funds. Um, They've structured all these as public-private partnerships all these charging stations that are built are going to be owned and operated in perpetuity by private industry. It's not going to be publicly owned sites. They're not going to be on public right-of-ways. Uh, the funding is really just kind of coming in as, as seed funding to get these things off the ground.
0: What changes in public policy would you anticipate to help us move toward greener alternatives for powering our motor vehicles? What's in the future?
2: Again, electricity is kind of complicated. This is a really weird sort of model. Um, typically, In in, in Louisiana, according to Public Service Commission, if you sell electricity to somebody, then you have to be a public utility. It's called charge for charge is the kind of industry term for it. And in Louisiana, that's not legal. So if anybody here um, listening has ever charged their vehicles at a charging site, you'll know that you're only ever charged for that transaction by the amount of time that you parked there or a flat rate. You're not actually charged for the electricity that you take from the charger. Tesla, Electrify America, Blink, ChargePoint, all these charging operators have to charge you per minute or per hour or something to that effect, as opposed to just selling you the electricity directly, because you would have to be classified as a utility to do so. There are like benefits and drawbacks all over the place for this sort of thing, so it's not like super-duper cut and dry exactly whether this should be the case or, or not. Um, but in Louisiana, that is governed by the Public Service Commission, and... I believe all the major utilities, uh, Intergy, Clico, and Swepco have come out saying that we should allow charge for charge um, because basically it's just such an impediment to electric vehicle adoption that um, it's impossible for companies to really make a guaranteed profit on these things, make a successful business model around chargers in the long run if you're not able to sell the electricity that you're that you're providing to customers. And then the other side of things, too, is that in Louisiana, we don't have time of use charges. So your electricity doesn't cost more based on when you use it, whether you're using it on peak or off peak. But we do have demand charges in most of the state. And what that means is that there's an extra, basically like a surcharge applied to your electricity bill at the end of the month based on the highest amount of power you pulled at any one time. So there is a lot of motion towards removing demand charges in Louisiana or setting up electric vehicle specific rate structures so that utilities don't charge this demand charge. Instead, um, so operators don't have to eat that demand charge. But all that has to be decided by the Public Service Commission. The the little quippy line that I like to say, and, and I've gotten approved by fire chiefs who actually know what they're doing and are not me, is that they're not more dangerous. They're differently dangerous. And we just need to understand what the difference is.
0: Tyler Herman is project manager with Louisiana Clean Fuels. Thanks for your time today. Thank you so much. From WRKF and WWNO, this is Louisiana Considered. Earlier this month, the Historic New Orleans Collection opened the exhibit, The Trail They Blazed. It's a traveling exhibition that tells the history of the New Orleans Civil Rights Movement from the 1950s through the 70s. It sets out to ask questions like, what was the problem? Who stepped up? What did they do? And how did things change? Eric Seifert is a historian and curator with the Historic New Orleans Collection. He joins us now. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So the story of the Civil Rights Movement, straight from the people who lived it. Whose voices did you use in this exhibit, and why did you choose them? What did they say?
3: Sure. Well, let me go back a few years, actually, to when we started an oral history project um, to capture some of the voices of people who participated in the Civil Rights Movement in New Orleans, um, really in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And we reached out, starting with um, Dr. Leona Tate, who was one of the four sixth grade girls who desegregated public schools. And from there, we recorded about 50 hours of oral histories, of 30 different people. From there, we continued the project into the Trail They Blazed, which is the traveling exhibition, um, which is designed as a public history project to get that content you know, out of our online database, out of the you know, what can be a confusing uh, place in searching for oral histories at a, you know, in a research center to directly to the public. Um, So we went back and we worked with the people um, who gave oral histories to talk about what stories to tell, how to tell them, what the project should look like, who we should be trying to reach, all of those big questions that go into designing
0: an exhibition. So it sounds like while you're the curator, you engaged people actually involved in the history to decide what to include in in the exhibit, is that right?
3: That's right. Uh, it was important to make this a collaboration with people who were part of this history and are around in telling this history. We spoke with Dr. Tate and have worked with her extensively over the years. She is featured in the in the audio. People like Dodie Smith Simmons and Don Hubbard, members of Core, um, Dave Dennis, um, another member of CORE who were all uh, instrumental in some of those early actions are featured. Um, Malik Rahim, who uh, participated in activism in the Desire neighborhood in 1970, you can hear his voice tell the story of going into that neighborhood and and working to um, improve the conditions in the neighborhood and and the resistance that he faced there. Of course, we're very honored to have uh, Mrs. Sybil Morial participate. Um, And you can hear her talk about um, voter registration efforts and um, talking about
0: the election of Dutch Morial in 1978. Tell me about some of the history itself. What are the events of the civil rights movement in New Orleans in the 50s, 60s, 70s that the exhibit focuses on? What do you choose to focus on?
3: Yeah, so we ended up selecting seven stories that include the desegregation of public schools in 1960. We tell the story of boycotts of the Congress of Racial Equality, um, the 1963 March on City Hall, um, voter registration and education work, supporting the movement, which is a really wonderful story about everybody who wasn't on the front lines, but helped to make change happen, and um, activism in the Desire neighborhood.
0: We're speaking with Eric Seifert of the Historic New Orleans Collection. We're talking about the exhibit, The Trail They Blazed, an exhibit on display now through November 10th. I understand one of the goals of the exhibit is to challenge the viewer to think critically about the civil rights movement. What kinds of questions are being asked of the viewer?
3: Absolutely. So um, we use a a series of questions for our narrative format. In other words, each story we tell is told by answering a series of questions that start with, what was the problem? Um, Who stepped up? What did they do? What obstacles did they face? And how did things change? So this allows us to break down the process of change-making, which is important because for our, um, the group that worked on the project, you know, the target audience is young New Orleanians, and one of the goals is to honor the work that was done, the important work that was done, and also to inspire younger people to continue um, to be engaged civically and work to improve our city in all the ways that we see coming through the exhibition and the work that was done before them. And um, you can read those quotes. Um, but you can also listen to them, and this was something that was really important to uh, be, to be able to hear the voices of the activists and the people that made change, not just to read them. So there are over three dozen audio segments that visitors can hear just by pushing a button, and they can hear the voices of the people who who you know were on the march on City Hall, um, who helped organize it, tell that story, or you can hear Dr. Leona Tate tell her. Uh, about her experience desegregating uh, McDonough-19 as, as a six-year-old and, and on and on. And the power in the voices of the changemakers is
0: undeniable. How would you say this exhibit addresses the fight for equality as it still exists today? How does it address the through line between the civil rights movement and modern day movements like Black Lives Matter, for example?
3: You know, our, our project participants really feel... That there's so much more work to be done. That was a conversation we had in almost every one of our meetings, and it was really important that that work continues for them. So that impacted our target audience, trying to reach young people, um, but it also impacted how we, you know, tell the stories. So we we end each story with how did things change, um, and we tried to be as honest and truthful as we could with that question, which is difficult to do, because in so many ways, things have changed dramatically from the 1960s, you know, when the city was racially segregated. Um, but in so many ways, it hasn't. And, and some of the obstacles to equity, and equality, and people having full civil rights still exist, or maybe just exist differently um, today than they did at the beginning of, of this story of the movement in the late 50s and 1960s. So, Um, we try to be honest with that. Uh, we present a picture that shows that yes, we have made progress, but there is work to do. And then we ask a series of engagement questions that we hope our visitors will spend time thinking about. Um, when was the time you stood up for something? Um, what makes you want to vote today? Um, questions like this that you can answer, um, by writing a short answer on a post-it and adding it to the exhibition to the physical
0: panel so that you can
3: participate
0: in a dialogue. The exhibit is The Trail They Blazed. It's on display now through November 10th at the TEP Center, St. Claude Avenue in New Orleans. Eric Seaforth is a historian and a curator of this exhibit at the Historic New Orleans Collection. Eric, thank you for your time today.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
0: And that's Louisiana Considered on a Wednesday. I'm Adam Voss. Thanks for listening.
2: Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience with additional support from Tulane School of Public Health.